he said to the disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes, love respectful greetings in the marketplaces and chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets, who devour widows' houses and for appearance's sake offer long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. And he looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury. And he saw a poor widow putting in two small copper coins. And he said, truly, I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all of them. For they all out of their surplus put into the offering, but she out of her poverty put in all that she had to live on. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its truthfulness. Father, we thank you for the way it challenges us and causes us to reflect on our status of being image bearers. Father, we need to ask ourselves, are we being conformed to the image of Christ? Are we looking and appearing and sounding and thinking and feeling and working the way that he does? Or Father, are we continuing in the appearance of our father Adam, broken and fallen and selfish? Father, today, by your grace and for your glory, we pray that our lives will be transformed. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, a fairly familiar passage of Scripture, particularly as it relates to the, the widow and her two small coins that she gives to the offering. And I'm going to do something a bit different with the text this morning than what you may have heard before. I've heard several sermons from this text. Almost all of them have been sermons about why you should give more money to the church. Not exactly what this passage is about, so it's unfortunate that people have abused the text in that way. There's a reason why Luke structures his letter, his gospel, the way that he does. I've mentioned this all throughout the letter, that he is intentionally placing stories together to create a building point of the need for redemption to be found in Jesus. He's driving the narrative toward the cross. He's driving the narrative toward the crucifixion and toward the resurrection. He is demonstrating the poor condition of those who are in this world and the emptiness and shallowness of man-made, self-righteous, pharisaical religion. And this story is, none, is not any different from any of those other stories. And so why does he structure it this way? So we just came off of, if you haven't been with us or if you have been following online, we just came off of there's the triumphant entry into the town. The Pharisees tell the people to be quiet. Jesus says, I'm not going to make them be quiet. Jesus drives the people from the temple who are uh, doing the exaggerated exchange rate for the sacrifices and for the money to perform the sacrifices as necessary. Then there is a a conversation about Jesus' authority and he talks about the vine growers and how they uh, are going to kill the son because they want the inheritance for themselves. Even though it doesn't belong to them, they're merely people that are supposed to be taking care of it. People are supposed to be participating in it. And then they attempt to catch Jesus by talking about the the place of worldly authority and scriptural interpretive authority and those kinds of things. And Jesus puts all of them in their place. And then we get to this text that we're looking at today. 
And it says, while everybody was listening to all of these things and seeing all of these things, he calls out the scribes again, very directly. And what he points out to them is that they are participants in consumer religion. They're participants in consumer religion. Notice what he warns them of. He says, beware of the scribes. Beware of those who are these religious leaders. And what warning does Jesus give about them? This is very important for what we want to see today. What warning does Jesus give about these religious leaders? Was he warning the crowd about their false teaching? Was he warning them about some gross hidden immorality that these religious leaders were living in? That they were covering up and keeping from the public's eye? No. Jesus didn't warn them about false teaching. Jesus didn't warn them about gross hidden immorality. What then was the great fault of the scribes that Jesus warns the people about? What was it that was so awful about these seemingly righteous and religious people that Jesus needed to have an entire public discourse about to warn the people away from them? What was it that was so ruinous about these people that he caused the crowd's attention to it so that they could guard themselves against it? What was it? Well, notice he lays out a few things. First, they enjoyed magnifying their outward display of position. Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes. These robes in the Jewish culture in the first century, particularly for religious leaders, would have been the prayer shawls that would have hung on the religious leaders. Other people could have worn them as well. But specifically for these religious leaders, they were very ornate of costly material. You could not have been a poor person and owned one of these. And so they were groveling in the fact that their religion had also made them abundantly wealthy. Somehow, in the middle of oppressive Roman tyranny, the religious leaders that should have been the greatest voice against the Roman tyranny and the call for people to repent because Roman tyranny existed because people had violated the covenant of God per the book of Deuteronomy and they needed to turn from their sins and come back to God. These people should have been the mouthpiece of this, calling out day and night for the people to repent so that God could heal them and deliver them. And rather, in that environment, and and trust me, if you're in an environment of Roman tyranny, and you're calling Roman tyranny, Roman tyranny, and saying that people need to repent so that God will overthrow your enemy, you're not going to do well in that culture and society. You're just not. And yet, here these men are. Some of the most well-off individuals in the Jewish community and they display it on their person through their religious vestments. Look at these very ornate robes that we have. These long prayer shawls that we have made of the most expensive material that can be found. Perfectly crafted and designed. And there's the just regular Joe supposed to be led by these men. Supposed to find comfort and encouragement and challenge And understand the covenant through the words of these men. Supposed to have their theological concerns addressed by these men. And here they are. Groveling in their outward display of position. Look at me. 
Look at how righteous I am. Look at how blessed I must be. Second, they required an inappropriate level of respect. People in general, because humans are made in the image of God, should respect other human beings and their humanity. I think there's a sense in our culture of a general loss of respect, just generally speaking. It's kind of the anti-authoritarian mindset that's inherent with Americans to start with. Let's never forget that. When I make statements like this, I'm not talking about the rightness or wrongness. This is just a statement of history. America was established by throwing off the authority and respect of the monarchy of England. Like that's how we got started. Entire books were written about how we don't need to yield to any other human power. Individualism and, you know, that sort of thing. It's one of the first nations that ever really tried. Let's all bond together in our individualism. It's kind of a weird battle cry, but it's the American battle cry. You know, it's the have it your way motif of Burger King. And it just so happens you're going to have it the same way everybody else is going to have it because they sell the same burger to everybody, you know. There's a sense in which there's a, a generalized lack of respect culturally. There's not a respect for positions, for offices, for people that just deserve respect because they bear the image of God. But there comes a break point where an unnecessary and overt requirement of respect, especially in the face of those who don't truly deserve it because of their wretchedness, becomes a problem. And these religious leaders were not good men on the most part. On the whole, the ones that we've encountered and experienced, the things that John the Baptist and Jesus had to say about them, they were not men worthy of the sort of respect that they demanded from the people. Now, why were they able to demand such respect? It says here, it says that they love respectful greetings in the marketplace. What did that look like? In the first century, unless you were a physical day laborer who, if you stopped doing your work it would actually slow production and cause you potential loss of job or the loss of the benefit of the one who had in, in, um, employed you for that day to do that work. Unless you were a day laborer, if a religious leader came walking through a community uh, environment and you saw them, you were supposed to stop doing whatever it was that you were doing and you were supposed to stand quietly at attention and watch them walk down the street until they got out of view and then go back to doing whatever you were doing. Even if they didn't look at you, even if they didn't acknowledge you, even if they didn't notice that you were alive, that's what you were supposed to do. And they loved it. They loved these respectful greetings. It's a little much, especially for people who weren't doing what they were supposed to do and being what they ought to be. But they longed for it. They also desired the peak places of prominence In the community, both religious and social. Notice what it says next. It says, and they desire the chief seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They wanted all eyes on them so that their eyes could also in turn be on everyone else looking at them. They wanted the best seat in the house wherever they went. They wanted to make sure that they were front and center in the religious community, 
They also wanted to make sure that they were front and center in the social community. They wanted a place of prestige. They demanded it. And then notice what Jesus says when you get to verse 47. It says they devour widows' houses. We don't find out from him how they did this. But it's important to note that this is the connecting point to the beginning of chapter 21. This shows us the point Jesus is making in chapter 21 isn't about how much you give or don't give. That's not the point he's making. He's connecting the fact that it is these religious leaders that have devoured the widow's houses that have left this widow who's about to give all that she has in the destitute state that she finds herself in. The religious leaders who should have been aiding her, should have been helping her, should have been creating a community that would have been able to support her when she was unable to support herself. This community has actually gained in their greed from her rather than helping her. And their greed hurts the most vulnerable, but somehow they find a way to justify it. And then it says, for appearance sake, they offer long prayers. Their prayers lack a genuineness. It's more of a matter of composition than content. And I'm not attempting to tell the story that I'm about to tell to belittle anyone who prays this way. I know that some people come from a generation where this is just how you learned how to pray because it was modeled for you. But humorously, somebody told me a story a long time ago about something very similar to this. And they said, in our modern age with our modern language and a move from middle to modern English, it's incredible how everyone becomes Shakespeare when they pray. You can't help but get a y'all out of you in regular conversation, but it's a thee and thine when it's time to begin praying unto the Lord. That's a humorous way to touch on this, but these folks, these men, these religious leaders didn't really care about the genuineness of their prayers. When they were leading people in religious exercises, it was more that they might be heard and that people might be impressed rather than to actually come to the throne of God and demonstrate a brokenness of heart. We have seen already in Luke's gospel, Jesus using the example of a Pharisee versus a tax collector. And they both went up to pray. And the Pharisee prayed to himself, it says in the text. And what was it that he prayed? He prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, like this tax collector. That's a prayer of composition, not content. He said, how did the tax collector pray? He wouldn't even look up. He stood far off and he said, God have mercy on me, the sinner. Not one time in the recorded gospel do we have a declaration that the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the one who should be pointing and driving the people toward a message of repentance, ever prayed a prayer of repentance themselves. Which, friend, by the way, should be the bulk of the content of most of our prayers. When you go back to the model prayer, and the disciples asked Jesus, Lord, teach us how to pray. He said, pray this way. God has great glory, our Father in heaven. Hallowed, holy be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, meet our very deepest needs. Give us this day our daily bread. And then do what? Forgive us of our sins. And help us to forgive those who've sinned against us. And don't lead us 
into temptation, but rather deliver us from evil. And then back to the glory of God. Almost half of the prayer is a prayer of repentance and deliverance from the wickedness that exists within and without. And not one time do we have an example of a Pharisee praying this way in any of our Gospels. So they had these prayers. And so friends, the great fault that's pointed out by Jesus about these men is not the fault of a false teaching. It's not the fault of some gross hidden immorality. It is the fault of an outward self-importance, an outward self-righteousness in religion, a self-justification because I think I have attained to some status that is better than, greater than, more worthy than, rather than living in the perpetual brokenness that someone regularly in the word of God should live in, where we constantly come to the realization of the end of ourselves that I am not worthy. And friends, you see a massive difference between the true prophets of the Old Testament and the Pharisees of Jesus' day. When you read the words of those who are true prophets of God, what is their perpetual and regular response? I've seen the Lord and I'm not worthy. They fall down on their face and they're broken And they're fretful. They weep over the condition of the people that they're preaching to. They call for the people with urgency and zeal to turn away from their sins and to turn back to God. They long for man to be made right with the Lord as they are being made right with the Lord. There is a sense of humility and brokenness that precedes the prophets of God of old. Not so with the Pharisees. And Jesus warns the people, he says, beware. Beware. And he includes the flamboyance of the rich in this as well. It's included in verse 1 of chapter 21. And he looked up and he saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury. There are some pretty solid accounts that tell us that the Uh, area that received the offering in this place in the temple was made of metal of some sort and that often what the very wealthy would do is they would go and make an exchange of the money that they were going to put into the offering bin for the smallest denomination that they could find so that they'd have the most to have to pour in and it made a great ruckus they'd have to bring big sacks of these coins with them and then they would have people help them turn those sacks over and it would make, you know, the clanging sound. And it was for show. Very much like the religious leaders' outward exercise of religious piety. It was for show. It wasn't real. And so Jesus making the transition to the second part of this with Luke displaying this, this connectivity in the gospel moves to give us a description of something that is the exact opposite of consumer religion. He moves us to the place of service religion. And so in chapter 21, beginning in verse 2, we have this poor widow and she comes and she places these two small coins. Lepta in Greek. Probably not even worth a penny. Maybe less. Almost not worth the material that it's made out of in value. 
And this needy widow who has nothing comes to make this spiritual offering. Because friends, I want to tell you, when you're bringing something that's worth less than a penny. The point of the story is not about the physical offering. That's not the point. At the end of the count, had that not been in there, it actually wouldn't have made a difference. It'd be like on our screen when it scrolls through and it talks about our weekly offering. And if it had said, you know, $9,873 versus $9,873.01. Most people don't even look past the period because we recognize that the cents only make a difference if you get a bunch of them. And so the point of this story is not about her physical offering. She is making a spiritual offering. This is all she had to live on, but she couldn't have gotten much with it to start with. She's not going to be able to go to the marketplace and take this small amount of money and actually buy anything. She's not going to be able to buy food. She's not going to be able to buy bread. She is completely impoverished. The point of the story is not about the physical resource. It's about her spiritual offering. It's about the condition of her heart. It's that she's not a consumer in her religion. She is one who is practicing service religion. I want to do, as small as it may be, whatever I can for my king. It's a complete difference of heart. It's a complete difference of perspective. She's not wearing the long flowery robes. She's not doing the great composition of of prayer. She's not gaining the best seat in the house. She doesn't want all eyes on me and all eyes on them. This is not the attitude of her heart. Her heart is an attitude of it doesn't matter how great the world thinks this is. I know that my God and King can do great things even with something so small. And I'm willing to give whatever it is to him to let him do what only he can do with it. It's the difference between consumer religion and a religion of sacrifice. Now, we don't know what kind of offering she was making. We don't know if this was the offering for temple service or for sacrifice or a free will offering. The purpose of her gift is completely inconsequential. The woman desired to do whatever she could do for the kingdom of God, regardless of the sacrificial impact it would have on her. She had next to nothing, and the little bit that she had, she gave it all away. The sacrificial impact was huge on her person. Which ties well with the last text that we saw last week, issues of authority and the kingdom. She placed all of her hope in the king and his kingdom, even to the point of viewing her very life as unimportant by comparison. She didn't do this for show. She didn't do this to draw attention. There was not an expectation of recompense. She merely wanted to serve, to do what she could to be useful to her God and to her king. And friends, there's a reason why these two stories are placed next to each other in Luke's gospel. He wants us to see a stark contrast in perspectives on religious service and religious practice. And so the question that we have to ask this morning, the rest of the time that we have together today, we have to ask the question, am I a religious consumer or am I a religious servant? Do I see what the kingdom can do for me or do I seek ways that I can serve the kingdom? And I'm going to move from preaching to meddling right now. I've been told I should warn people when that's going to happen. You have been warned. Let's move forward. This year, 
will be 22 years that I have been involved in some version of pastoral ministry. I've seen a lot, been through a lot, know a lot of guys who've seen a lot and been through a lot, have spent a lot of time with guys leading in other places, asking questions and having conversations about church life and church service and how people engage in religious life. And there's a common theme over the past two decades plus that I've personally encountered and that friends of mine who are in ministry have also encountered, regardless of their cultural context. But particularly in the American cultural church context. And it goes something like this. Hey, did, um, did those people who were visiting your church, did they ever decide to join? Well, we thought they were going to, but... Oh, here it comes. What was it exactly that kept them from wanting to join in with your fellowship? Were they concerned about the nature of the preaching and teaching ministry of your church? Were they concerned because you're still working through some theological issues that maybe don't point people to Jesus as well? Were they concerned about some carryover of some political factions that create unnecessary division and, and, and envying and strife if they were to become a part of that community? Were they concerned with the spiritual well-being and blessing that would come on them through exercising the normal means of grace with that particular community? And to a person, every time for over two decades, the answer is, oh, nothing like that at all. We didn't have the right kind of children's stuff for their kids. They didn't really think the youth group had cool enough kids in it or enough hip things going on. There wasn't enough stuff on the calendar. They didn't have the men's group or the women's group or the you just fill in whatever descriptive pronominal adjective that you want to to help describe the sort of ministry it was that they were looking for in the church. They didn't have the things, the stuff that they were looking for that would make them feel like the church would be best fit for them. Friends, I'm going to tell you, and I'm going to say it very aggressively and very plainly, but I kind of going to just stand on the foundation of the text that we've just read from Luke to be like really okay saying this out loud. If your search and quest for a fellowship of believers surrounds you answering all of the questions, what is it going to do for me? You are one of the scribes that Jesus warned about. And as an old friend of mine said, if you can't say amen, say ouch. Because friends, religious service isn't about consumerism. This isn't novel with me, but the greatest illustration that I've ever heard done of this, and there's a short video about it that somebody has produced. You ought to go look it up on YouTube later. But people compare the concept of church in one of two ways. Either you're looking for a cruise ship or you're looking for a battleship. You're getting ready to take a cruise. You ask all of the selfish questions. What kind of food do they have? What sort of entertainment's going on? Am I going to enjoy myself? Is it going to be a relaxing time? Will people be there to meet my needs and to serve me at a women call? Do they have spacious rooms for me to enjoy? Do they have good excursions that you can add on if you'd like to? You know what? If you're going on a relaxing, luxurious cruise, you want to ask all those selfish questions because going on a cruise is a selfish thing and occasionally that's all right. No big deal. You go on vacation. Great. 
But friends, church isn't a cruise ship. Your religious life is not a cruise ship. It's not about your luxury and your benefit and what you get from it and how easy things are for you. The metaphor most commonly used is that of those going to war. It's a battleship. Are those who are leading it, leading us in a smart and safe way, are they preparing us to engage the enemy? Are things in such a way that when I do engage the enemy, I will be prepared and I will not be overwhelmed? If I am overwhelmed, am I surrounded by people who will come to my aid rather than leaving me abandoned and all alone out there on my own? Am I receiving the sort of instruction that I need that I can be a helpful and useful part of making this battleship operational the way that it ought to be? Friends, there's a strong distinction between consumer religion and service religion. The question that we shouldn't ask is, does the church have this for me? The question ought to be, hey, I see a gap. Is there a way God can use me to make this thing happen so it can benefit others at the church? That's the question. And you will not believe the number of times in my life over these two plus decades that I've sat across the table with people, otherwise seemingly God-fearing, God-loving, Jesus-oriented people. And there's something that they feel is lacking at the church that is not of prominent, preeminent importance. It's not a means of grace. It's not focused around the word. It's not focused around corporate prayer. It's not focused around genuine spirit-filled fellowship. It is something that is additional, something that's supplemental, something that might indeed be beneficial, but is of not the greatest level of importance. And you sit across the table and say, well, the church just doesn't have X. Whatever X is doesn't matter. And we're going to go find a place that already has X. And my question every time has always been, well, if you think X is so important and you think people would benefit from X, why don't you stay here and help make X happen? And sadly, sadly, every time I've had that conversation, except for maybe half a dozen in over two decades, the response has been some version of, well, why would I want to go put all that work in to do that? <laughs> is essentially the response. Why wouldn't I just go to a place that's already done all the work for me so I can just step in and enjoy the benefits of somebody else's work? That's consumer religion. And that's not what Jesus came for. In fact, Jesus warned against it. Beware of the scribes. Why? Because they taught false things? No. Beware of the scribes. They have this hidden immorality in their life that's going to get exposed one day. No. Beware of these religious people who go around and find out and ask the perpetual constant question, what's in it for me? He said, because that's not what the kingdom of God is about. The kingdom of God is not about what's in it for you. And this is a hard pill to swallow because you know what? There's been plenty of times I've personally been on the end of being part of consumer religion. It's not about what's in it for me. Friends, the fact that you're in the kingdom at all should overwhelm us with gratitude and gratefulness to a God who would let wretched sinners into his presence. The fact that we've received entryway, 
with empty, dirty hands, dark, stony, cold hearts that have been replaced with a heart of flesh by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we've now had our nakedness clothed with, clothed with his robes of righteousness, that our famine-filled souls have now been able to feast on the glorious things that God gives to us. The fact that this is true of us should drive us regularly, like this widow, to say, whatever I've got, small as it is, I want you to have it and use it. And it's not about the money. Because friends, at the end of the day, and I'm not saying this so that you know offerings go down, but at the end of the day, God doesn't need our money. One of the worst times historically for the Christian church was in the upper middle ages. There's a lot of reasons for that, theological, political, and otherwise. But do you want to know one of the worst things that was going on for the church, particularly the European church in the upper middle ages? They were the richest organization on earth. And almost all of their people who lived in their kingdoms were poor and broken and wretched and sick. As a fact, the story told, it's a mythical story. You can't really find a source to verify the story, but I like it, so I'm going to tell it. It's a story told when young Thomas Aquinas in the monastery and during his studies. And the abbot of the monastery comes and he's, Thomas is working in the treasury helping to count out the gold that the church has and it was an abundant amount. And the abbot looks over at Aquinas and he says to him, Young Thomas, no longer can we say, like Peter, silver and gold have we none. To which it's test rumored that Aquinas looked at him without missing a beat and said, That's true, sir, but no longer can we say, stand and walk like he did either. Friends, it's not about the money. The story is not about the money. God doesn't need our money. But you know what God desires from us? He doesn't need it, but do you know what he desires from us? If we have come into his kingdom, if we have been made new by the blood of Jesus Christ, if we have received a heart of flesh and had our heart of stone removed, if our spiritual deadness has been replaced with spiritual life, if we now bear the mark in the name of the Most High God, if we are rightly and properly bearing the image of the Lord Jesus Christ because of the redemptive work that happens through the triune God, the Father willing it, the Son accomplishing it, the Spirit filling us with His presence to achieve it, if this is our reality, do you know what it is that God desires from us? Full, unashamed unhesitant yielding to his authority and kingship. He doesn't want us puffing out our chests and saying, yeah, I hear you, Jesus, but what's in it for me? And friends, I'm sorry. This is blunt and it's direct and it's rough and I'm sorry. But sometimes that's just how it is. There is far too much consumer religion in the Western modern American church and it's killing the external value of the gospel in the world. The old Chinese missionary came to America from persecution and pain and suffering and sorrow. 
and was able to come here with some other believers and they were showing them some of the churches and some of the ministries and some of the things that were being done. It was very ornate and very programmatic and very well polished. And someone asked, he said, what do you think what the American church is doing compared to the things that you're able to do there in China under persecution with so little? And the Chinese missionary responded, I marvel and find it amazing how much the American church can do without the Holy Spirit. Friends, ours is not a call to consumer religion. Ours is not a call for look at me. Ours is not a call for what's in it for me. Ours is not a call for hyper levels of respect and and compositional prayers over content and all of the other things that the scribes were doing that Jesus warned us off of. We are not to seek prominence. We are not to seek displays of position. We are not to seek an unnecessary requirement of respect. We are to have genuineness in our prayers. Our, Our Our engagement with the community should be helpful and not hurtful. We should not be flamboyant in our outward displays. Rather, like this poor, needy widow. In essence, she had nothing. But she knew that even the nothing that she had in the hands of Almighty God could be something great. And so she humbly and fully and unreservedly gave her nothing to the God who's able to make something out of nothing. That's what she did. Service religion. And I hear it all the time, dear Christian friend, and here's how I want you to be encouraged today. I hear it all the time. But Philip, I don't have anything special about me. Well, praise God, welcome to the club. When you run through the list of the saints in the scripture, all of them had significant issues. If you want to be honest, there's only maybe, at most, half a dozen people listed in the Bible that had anything about them that was exceptional at all. Most of them, you wouldn't give a second glance at because of their natural capabilities. They were not equipped from a natural human viewpoint, to do any of the things that they did. But do you know what the common thread is with all of them? They humbly approached God, open hands, and said, Here am I, just like Isaiah, here am I. Whatever you want to do, God, with my life, my yes is on the table. You just point and I'll go. You just say and I'll do. You tell me the oughtness of it and I will be. This was their response. And you know what? Thousands of years later, we still know who these people are. Why? Because they were exceptional? No, because their God is an exceptional God. So friend, don't come with the lame excuse. Well, I don't have anything special about me. Most people don't. And usually the thing that is special about them is used as a wayward thing for the powers of darkness in the city of man anyway. And it's not usually very helpful to the kingdom of God. All you have to do is come with your nothing. And then just give it. Whatever that thing is. 
Everyone who's in Christ has been gifted by the Spirit in some way for the benefit of the kingdom. Everyone has. There's not one Christian who lives who has not received spiritual gifts from the Spirit for the benefit of service to the kingdom and a reflection of the glory of the King. But we, and I include myself, notice I said we, we spend far too much time and energy asking the question, well, what's it going to do for me? Friend, it might not do anything for you. Aren't we glad that Jeremiah didn't ask what's it going to do for him? When he was thrown into a pit and the city burned down around him. Aren't we glad that Jesus didn't ask, well, what's it going to do for me? Well, he got the name above every name. He had the name above every name. We just now know that his name is the name above every name. It was for us. It was for our benefit. He came to seek and save that which was lost. It wasn't about him. He made himself low. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the very King of Heaven. He is the second person of the Trinity and he veiled himself in flesh and was born as a helpless infant in a a manger on the backside of nowhere to an inconsequential family in an inconsequential place. Why? So he could ask what's in it for me? No. For the benefit of the other. And so, friends, this story is placed here. It's placed here for us. And as we look ahead, I just want you to kind of a cheat sheet as we look ahead. I want you to notice that, that Luke wedges this story about consumer versus servant religion right in front of Jesus' discourse on the end of time. Because our preparation for the eschaton, the great day of the final judgment, plays itself out based on the notion of, am I participating in a consumer religion or a service religion? Is my religion about me or is my religion about the glory of Jesus Christ? This is a pivotal question to ask when you want to talk about future glory and future judgment. Because, friends, this isn't a peripheral question. It is a gospel-centered question. You cannot simultaneously live under the full truth of the gospel and constantly be asking, what's in it for me? That's not how the gospel works. That's not what the gospel drives us to. That's not the kind of people the gospel makes us to be. And so, again, we have to close with... The question, am I a religious consumer or am I engaged in service religion to the Lord Jesus Christ? Let's pray together. Father God, thank you. Thank you for challenging texts like this one. Father, thank you for the weight of stories like these the direct words of Jesus, his warnings to us to look deeply at ourselves and to ask hard questions. Father, forgive me, forgive us when we participate in consumer religion. When we long for it to be easy, when we desire the path to be smooth, 
when we want to know that the risk versus reward ratio will be ever in our favor. Father, this is not what you've called us to. You've called us to brokenness and repentance and a longing to make much of someone who is not us, namely our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. May all that we say, all that we do, all that we are be concentrated by your grace and for your glory to that end, making much of Jesus. And Father, we thank you for the work that you will do in our lives in this regard. In Jesus' name, amen. I invite you this time to sing a song together with us.